Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Extra Buttery Podcast. This week on the show, we won't be having the special guest that we promised in the last episode, but uh, she will be coming up in episode seven in a couple weeks' time. But we will be getting into a whole bunch of uh, different news items and a a larger discussion about uh, the brand new Netflix show, uh, Iron Fist. Uh, So this week on the show, it'll be a brief little discussion on the upcoming rating system change on Netflix from uh, the age-old five-star system to a simple thumbs-up, thumbs-down. Then we'll talk a little bit about the new Amazon show from the director of The Lobster and uh, his new casting choice. After that, we'll get into the future of the Terminator franchise and a few little bits about uh, Tom Cruise and the, and the crazy new stunt that he's apparently planning for Mission Impossible 6. Then we'll talk a little bit about Power Rangers, which is uh, hitting theaters just as this episode launches. And uh, we'll let Jason talk a little bit about what he's keeping his eye on for that big release, what it might mean for the larger series and the films that might come later on. So coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow. And I'm joined by my co-host, Jason Chen. Hey, Jason, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing all right. I've been watching a little bit of uh, Iron Fist. Me too. <laughs> over the past couple of days. It uh, it just launched um, last weekend on the, uh, the day we're recording here. And uh, I don't know about you, but there's a lot to be desired in this season of, uh, of TV compared to some of the other Marvel shows that yeah, Netflix it's... has posted recently. Yeah, I agree. It's not very good, which is, I think, okay, because I think Netflix, for the most part, have done has done really well with the rest of their shows. But this one, for I think for a lot of reasons, it doesn't seem to work. I think the pacing is off. I don't think the acting is very good. I don't find it very exciting. Um, there's not a lot of sh- redeemable parts in the show. Um, I started watching, I think, the first three episodes, and by then I was kind of over it like I, I couldn't keep watching because it was just so bad it wasn't like daredevil what i pounded out one season one day and i don't know about you but uh i'm tired of actors playing characters that can't seem to explain themselves you know like that was the most frustrating thing for me to watch danny Rand bumble around trying to explain who he is when really i felt like we could have gotten over that part of the show within like the first 20 minutes Oh yeah, definitely. That that pilot episode was all over the map. Um, actually, let's let's just uh, play a clip for people who aren't super familiar. Hi, I'm Danny Rand. I've uh, been away a long time. Let's go. You don't belong here. I, I'm Danny Rand. Guys, I just want to talk. And there you have it. That was a clip from uh, one of the trailers for Iron Fist. But yeah, you you open up that pilot episode, and at first it seems like it's trying to go for something like like a drawn out kind of tension, where you're uh, they're trying to evoke the idea that the Danny Rand character, I guess he's not supposed to be a man with a plan. You know, he's supposed to just arrive in New York, and and there's supposed to be a sort of innocence about him in the sense that he doesn't really he doesn't really have an idea how he's gonna go about getting his old life back. But 
he all we know is he's super determined to do it yeah and he there's all these faux pas that he commits over the course of the first hour it's so cliched yeah it just it, i feel like they made their point with that idea the first time they tried it in the first weird uh interaction he had and then they could have just got right into building the world up and you know they didn't need to repeat that concept over and over and over again. And you know how people have said, like, this is a really humorless show? Like, there's no comic relief whatsoever? Yeah, that's another problem, yeah. Like, for a guy who spent the past 15 years in some monastery in another dimension, there should be a lot more, like, uh, physical comedy, you know? Like, he's a guy walking around barefoot in, like, the biggest city in the world. There should be things that he's never seen or done before, having lived in a monastery. That should be really funny, right? So, you know the part where he drinks coffee the first time, and he kind of has a sip, and he makes this, like, weird face about, like, like it's the most disgusting thing he's ever had? I wish we had more of that. Just as a relief, just to, like, really kind of get to know the character and what he's like a little bit. I, I feel like that's a huge missed boat right there. Yeah, like the, and I don't know if it's because the um, the star, uh, is it Finn Jones? Yeah, he was yeah. in Game of Thrones. I don't know if it's because Finn Jones maybe doesn't have quite the instinct for comedy that some of the other actors in the in the other Netflix shows have, or... I, I don't know, I think it's the writing. Yeah, I mean, it's there's definitely some issues with the writing, and I mean, that's... Uh, compared to Daredevil or Luke Cage, which had a much better balance between action, drama, comedy, uh, this one seems to be trying to go for more or interpersonal drama, like family, uh, family clashes, and a little uh, bit, yeah, relationship stuff versus balancing those things out with kind of funny observations or references to the larger film universe. Yeah, so, like, the first few episodes, the main villain's that uh, Ward Meacham, right? Like, his childhood friend, quote-unquote friend. But that's the weird part, too, because it, the, the show, it, yeah, as the, as the show goes on, it doesn't even seem to commit to the idea of Ward being a villain. Yeah, and the thing is, he's not very compelling to begin with. Yeah. He's kind of deadpan, and he kind of sits there, he mumbles some stuff, and he's kind of pouty. I thought, actually, the stars of the show were the women, so... Jessica Stroop, she plays um, the sister, Joy, Joy, yeah. And then Jessica Henwick was really good. And when Carrie Ann Moss came back, that was obviously, I think, for me, one of the highlights in the early parts of the episodes. Yeah, and we we unfortunately don't see enough of her. Yeah, she because she was so no-nonsense, you know? Like, there's too many characters in the show that are kind of, like, beating around the bush or kind of drift in and out. And, and you don't really know what their real purpose is. So, like, at the beginning, there's that homeless guy, Big Al, right? Who, like, all of a sudden just befriends this guy with a, with a 90s iPod. Yeah, exactly. Like, and then he dies, like, three episodes in from a drug overdose, and he sees his tattoo, and it's supposed to tease something about for the show later on, but you're just like, I don't really care. I don't really see how this is important. Exactly, yeah. That was, uh, they, they kind of wrote him out without very much fanfare at all. No, and I feel like the thing with Iron Fist is that it lacks a specific tone. So with Jessica Jones and Daredevil, a little less so with Luke Cage, like there's the music, either this music or the palette they use really ties it all together. But with Iron Fist, it feels like a like a Marvel movie. Like there's no specific look to it. It's a lot of gray. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's not a lot of color or really 
interesting cinematography going on and i feel like that's a real shame and that extends to the uh, the fight choreography as well i mean yeah it's so boring oh whereas daredevil was all, was shot with uh, with plenty of uh, cinematic references you know one of the one of the the most striking ones is to the uh, the Korean film uh, Old Boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in a in this lengthy fight sequence, uh, I can't remember what point it it happens in Daredevil season one, but it grabs you by your shirt and you're like, "Wow, I can't believe they did that." Yeah, season one was when he was trying to save that little girl or boy, and then season two was the stairs. Yeah. So I mean, there's no sequences at all like that in Iron Fist, even though uh, you could make the argument that Iron Fist is supposed to be maybe more proficient at martial arts than the daredevil character so that doesn't yeah, there's a paradox there and for something that's inspired by like kung fu and bruce lee and stuff the fighting is very very unbruce lee like you know what i mean like it's slow it's choreographed it, you don't really feel the quickness or the power in any of his moves you don't even feel that Danny Rand is particularly proficient at martial arts. He's he's often getting his uh, his ass kicked in <laughs> in more times than not. Yeah, and when he's like spouting off about Zen and Buddhism and all his stupid crazy stuff, like I just really couldn't give a fuck, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's max of that kind of cultural pro- appropriation stuff that the show was getting criticized for uh, initially and a little uh, bit at the before the show came out, uh, the cultural appropriation criticisms didn't hold much weight because we hadn't seen the show yet the criticisms actually do make a little bit more sense now because here's this character who is white who goes and takes on all this knowledge yeah, it's the white savior problem yeah it's the white savior problem but he's not even that good at it like he's not no. <laughs> you're not impressed by it or it's highlighted even more um i think it's episode eight where he has a fight with an actor uh it's a I believe he's a asian american actor or maybe uh, he might originally be from England. He has an English accent in the scene. But apparently that actor was considered for the role of Danny Rand. I'm one of those people that feel like even though Danny Rand, like the comic book source material, is a white character, they should have just cast an Asian dude. It, it makes so much more sense. <laughs> this guy that he fights is is the, exactly the type of attitude that we want from the character. You know, he's charismatic. He's funny. He's uh, yeah. That's the uh, thing. He's um, a considerably better fighter yeah. than Finn than Jones. Finn Jones. Is, Finn Jones isn't very charismatic at all, huh? Like he really doesn't suck you in. He kind of pushes you away because he's got this like a, a little pretentiousness in him where he walks around bare feet and he's like, oh yeah, no big deal, whatever. I'm not going to get diseases or anything. Yeah. I'm surprised there hasn't been more characters in the show that comment about probably how dirty and smelly he is. And it it was such a sigh of relief when like uh, Carrie Ann Moss's character came in and she's like, it's New York City. People are going to judge you by the way way you look. Please clean yourself up. <laughs> and then, well, and then they clean him up, and then that's it's just a non-issue after that. Like pretty much as soon as as soon as Carrie Ann Moss makes that comment, the the show decides uh, to take away any other fish out of water quality about the Danny Rand character. He's just kind of a he's a billionaire who happens to be good at martial arts. That's that's the the extent of his character after that. Yeah, a shittier version of Batman. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and getting back to the fight choreography really quick, though, there's the um, something that actually popped out today. Uh, I found it on Twitter. Uh, apparently, Finn Jones gave an interview suggesting that he was only learning some of the fights 15 minutes before they shot. No, well, that would explain a lot because it, it he obviously looks like someone who doesn't know how to fight. 
Exactly. And and he Finn Jones chalked it up to the scheduling on the show, which may be maybe a valid complaint. Like maybe the production company was uh, rushing to get the the show complete, or the. But then, how did Daredevil do it? Well, maybe because they kind of let Daredevil have more creative freedom to get it done whenever they felt it was done, and maybe this time there was more pressure to like get it out the door and meet a delivery date for the Defenders or something. That could explain why his character is so like malleable. Like his goals and convictions kind of change depending on the scene, and there's not a real like stiffness to him, like a like a, a, a drive towards a certain goal for him. Exactly. And he spends the, the middle block of episodes basically whining about how everyone's criticizing him for not having a plan. And that gets really tiresome. Or the fact that he kind of confuses childhood friend with family. That part just kind of like, it, it didn't connect with me because just like, how, how do you make this leap? Like, how do you not realize that people change over 15 years or that people can change? And the show brushes that that conflict under the rug pretty much a couple, like by episode five or six. They've come up <laughs> with a, a really convenient explanation for how they can push past that and change the dynamic of the show all over again. And it's that I really think it's a changing dynamics between the characters, a, a lack of conviction of, about what the characters are. Yeah, that that's the biggest letdown for the show, because I think they could they could push past some mediocre fight sequences or something if you actually you know, uh, understood what the character stood for and what the overall dynamic between them is. And like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, I don't see a reason for each season to be 13 episodes. It should just be as long as you need it to tell a story. Like there's no need to stretch it out. That Finn Jones thing about having a lack of time to, to prepare, at least that sounds like a more valid criticism than saying like, we live in the day of Trump. And this TV series came out at the wrong time. And I was just like, dude, come on, stop. Like, sure, maybe you feel strongly about a lot of things he says, but your show isn't bad because of him. It's bad because it's objectively bad. There are poor things that are done about it. I haven't read the in, the entire summary of, of his interview in that case, but it it smacked of kind of like the the Alex Proyas uh, comments after Gods of Egypt. He's came terrible out. too. You know, it's yeah. a, it's, yeah, I think Finn Jones is joining a tradition of creative people who can't take criticism and who latch on to really weak arguments to, to uh, defend their, uh, their work. I mean, regardless of what you think about Trump, but using him as, as an excuse is low hanging fruit. Oh, like yeah. you're not, yeah. you're not reaching very far for this kind of stuff anymore. But uh, out of five stars, what would you rate it, though? Uh, so right far? now, I mean, I'm ten episodes in. I'm, uh, I feel like I'm a two and a half or a three. Um, yeah, I'm. A, I'm about a three. I mean, yeah. I think I don't there are enough parts it. in it that I like. Yeah, I don't actively hate it. I think the fact that it's like what seventeen percent on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever is ridiculous. I don't think it's that bad, um, but it certainly is not based on what Jessica Jones and Daredevil and Luke Cage are a good show. Yeah, exactly. But when it stands in comparison with those, it's it's just doesn't hold up at all. It's it's the weakest the weakest part of the the overall um universe. It watches very much like a cable show. Like a Gotham or Agents of Shield. Like even the violence isn't there, you know? Like I'm a, I was expecting like bloody 
broken bones and like people getting smashed in with his iron fist but people just kind of fly through the air and crash into cardboard boxes and that's kind of the extent and well i mean how we would rate Iron Fist is actually a good way to transition here because uh, Netflix came out a couple of days ago and said that they're going to be completely uh, changing over the way we actually rate the stuff we watch on on their service. As a consumer, yeah, as a consumer, this is like stupid idea. I hate it. Yeah, and for the people who haven't seen any of the headlines yet, essentially what Netflix is doing is they're they're getting rid of the age-old five-star ranking system and they're replacing it with a thumbs-up, thumbs-down, very binary kind of system. And they claim that everything that they have always been collecting in the background, like how much of a a show or a movie you watch or other metrics like that, they'll still bring those to bear in their recommendations for you as a user, but it's still, I don't know, I think for for hardcore Netflix users, people who've been using the service for a while, it does feel like they're, uh, Netflix is stripping away some of your variety because you, you're not sure whether, uh, whether their new recommendations engine is actually going to be able to help you discover new stuff. I think there's two thing, two layers to this. First, I think it streamlines people's recommend or the recommendations that Netflix gives you because I think YouTube used to do the same. They used to have a five-star system and they changed it to a thumbs up, thumbs down. But I also think it's because it might be something to do with the way data is collected or analyzed for Netflix where they might not want people to know or they're changing the way they collect data and this is somehow in their minds a better way to do it. I kind of disagree because I've like grown to really like the Netflix system because if the difference between a three-star and a four-star, the way they describe it is liked it versus really liked it, and then the five-stars loved it, and I've, I've grown so accustomed to using that scale that I've kind of applied it to other places, and I just hate having it changed up on me. There's been there's been a few articles written about this in the um, since the announcement came out, you know, people talking about how uh, Siskel and Ebert, for example, uh, really were the ones to uh, bring this whole liked it or didn't like it dynamic to film criticism and now it's it's finally kind of percolated down to to netflix if you ever read if read anything by by roger ebert on his blog for example in the years before he died he would talk about how you know he was never himself he was never happy with the thumbs up thumbs down it was something they sort of invented for tv to to simplify things and make uh make the show flow better um, yeah, it's far it, too simplistic you know and it uh he he will he would always tell people like don't don't rely on his thumbs up or thumbs down or even the star rankings on his reviews. Just like read the review and get a complete idea of what what he thought. But for Netflix, I mean, now I will say though, in defense of Netflix's system change, the there have been a lot of times in the past little while where I've gone into the top picks for Robert category on the Netflix app and the recommendations have been way out of whack. And I don't know if that's because I watch... Oh, mine too. I don't know if that's because I watch a crazy wide variety of stuff. Like I'm into foreign films and classic movies yeah, and brand new stuff. that's usually the case. Um, maybe I'm just... Man, I'm too good of a movie buff for, for Netflix's recommendation algorithm. I, I also wonder too about users who actually don't rate things. You know, they just... Uh, they watch stuff as it comes up. They don't spend a lot of time digging. I wonder whether this new system change will be better for those people who care less about 
being really specific about how they feel about a, a, a show or a movie, and they just want to go have that binary yes, no kind of reaction to something. That's a pretty interesting concept, actually, because, I mean, I think you'll meet two kinds of people, ones that already know what they want to watch and ones that don't know what they want to watch. It's a classic argument for them of like, do the people know what they want? <laughs> and a lot of times I think you can make the argument that no, people don't know what they want. But I just think that a thumbs up, thumbs down system is way too simplistic. There are a lot of things I wouldn't give either a thumbs up or a thumbs down to. I just felt like I just spent two hours that I would never get back. And that's not necessarily a thumbs down thing. It's just, well, I'm glad to know that I didn't enjoy that kind of feeling, you know? Uh, they're apparently rolling out the change in April, so I guess uh, there'll be plenty of time to field test it and uh, report back on uh, on how it works. Well, at any rate, like, I mean, whether we like it or not, things are already set in motion. They're going to change it. So at this point, we're just kind of bitching and whining. I, the only thing I'm afraid of is that even now, sometimes I have movies that are hidden from me because Netflix doesn't think I'd like it. But when in reality, I'm kind of intrigued by it. Um, there, There's once in a while I like bad movies, you know, like just like stuff that you just really don't mind watching brain dead for two hours <laughs> are you saying that you're secretly watching steven seagal films hey i've watched steven seagal films like there's a lot of steven seagal films on canadian there's Netflix. nothing wrong with steven seagal if you, if that's if that's your thing whatever um i will say though like a lot of movies bad movies that i missed in theaters say like ninja turtles i caught on netflix so i'm happy for that yeah sure i mean that there's there's always been a strong argument uh in netflix's favor for you know, giving you those movies for what feels like free when, uh, uh, you yeah, know, it's, it's, something, it's, it's something that you, you wouldn't want to pay 15 bucks to see on the big screen. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that, uh, that they're changing the system. Um, speaking of Netflix and like other studios, should we call them alternative studios now? Not like big studios, but like alternative studios. Is that the name we should call them? I don't know. That's, uh, uh, I mean, they're they're streaming platforms, but they're... Yeah, they're I, studios now, though. They're all yeah, studios. Yeah, I mean, they're all financing their own stuff. It's um, Yeah, so like the biggest one, I think the most intriguing one lately I'm thinking about is the one by Amazon with um, the director of The Lobster. And I, like, I apologize if I'm like pronouncing his name way wrong, but Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> okay. So he just cast Colin Farrell in his new Amazon TV show. And anytime these two are together, I feel like I'm like super excited because I think Colin Farrell's like one of the most underrated actors ever. And uh, especially since he sort of, uh, he's, I don't know if he made the conscious decision or whether it's just sort of happened to him, but he's realized that he's way better as a character actor than as a leading man kind of guy. His days as a leading man, like he had too many misses, right? He had SWAT, Total Recall, well, maybe Total Recall was later, but like he had a lot of, uh, or the phone booth phone booth was good i thought uh the recruit with al pacino like these were supposed to be like big blockbuster action films that kind of tom cruise and keanu reeves have made a name of for themselves and he couldn't quite do it but i think he's a far better actor than both of them actually uh yeah in terms of like actual craft yeah i would i would agree with that yeah yeah with actual craft i mean tom cruise is kind of underrated for what he does but uh, we'll get to that. But anyway, the new series, for people who don't know, is about the Iran-Contra incident. And he plays um, 
Oliver North, right? So Oliver North, the lieutenant colonel of the um, National Security Council. Oh, okay. Um, so he plays the lead, and it's it's kind of different from the lobster because the lobster was very conceptual, right? Oh, like yeah. It was kind of off the wall. Um, really unconventional. So for something like this, this feels like a very serious subject matter, something that you might not want to poke fun of too much because I think there are certain things about it that are still relevant today that might rub people off the wrong way. So, and, and Colin Farrell's like a great dramatic actor, but he's also made a name for himself playing like these really awkward off-the-wall characters as well. So I wonder what kind of tone or, or what kind of show we're going to get from uh, from these two guys. Yeah, I would I would I would probably say that um, if the lobster is any indication, it'll there'll be a quite a bit of black comedy in it. I, I think that's the way it'll go too. And it's interesting too that uh, that Amazon Studios would uh, would go after a show like this uh, because Netflix is actually going to be releasing a new. I think it's I think it's a feature film uh, with Brad Pitt, which also revolves around a idiosyncratic military guy who's got a pretty uh, significant command and who gets tied up in a in a major operation and how how the like black comedy can be derived from what on the surface might be a really a serious situation do you remember um charlie wilson's war yeah yeah i i have a feeling it's kind both tv shows are going to be somewhat similar to that they're tv shows right um well the the Lanthimos one is definitely a TV show, but I think the, yeah, that the Brad Pitt, show. the Brad Pitt Netflix one, might be one of those like ninety-minute to two-hour feature films. Oh, okay, all right. So, but either way, yeah, like I, I feel like it'll be in the same vein, a little black comedy. Um, I would watch Colin Farrell over Brad Pitt any day, though. Oh yeah, just yeah, because <laughs> you you sort of know what you're getting with Brad Pitt. Like if he's playing a military guy, like I I have a feeling it'll be a similar type of character to the one he played in Fury. Uh, by David Ayer. So I read the other day that Tom Cruise, who's been filming Mission Impossible 6, or will be filming Mission Impossible 6, has been practicing this one stunt for over a year now. And considering the things he does and and the, the stuff that he puts himself through, who, and a person I, in my opinion, is the last action star, last action movie star of Hollywood... Um, I really wonder what he has in store for us. Um, I just hope it has nothing to do with planes, because I feel like that's overdone. If they did something plane-related for MI6, it would uh, it would it would end up feeling a little bit too much like MI5, because the uh, the big A380 stunt that, that opens that movie was uh, was what everyone was talking about when that movie came out. It's got to do do have to do something with like speed, because he loves his bikes and exactly or well it could be speed but then in in mission impossible 4 it was the climbing the burj khalifa um so that was height yeah but he had the car chase but had the car chase through the desert storm yeah right but that one but but that one was that's just a car chase though i mean as good as it was it was uh it isn't like sticking yourself to the side of the tallest building in the world right right it's 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 not the stunt of the film Um, yeah you're right the other one in Mission Impossible Five that that a lot of people were talking about was the underwater scene because he had to uh, train to hold his breath for what was it like six minutes or something? Six, dude, that's crazy. The six minutes thing blows my mind because I find it hard to hold my breath for a minute, and he did it for six. Like, don't you lose brain cells by that time? 
Well, that's why he trained for so many months with, uh, with like, um, free divers, you know, the guys who go down to depths of, you know, several hundred meters and hold their, hold their breath for, you know, 15 minutes in some cases. He trained with those, the, those type of guys. Yeah, regardless of how you feel about Tom Cruise, you gotta admire his dedication. Not many movie action stars can like are willing to go through that. Yeah, it's ba- there's very few of those guys left. Like, um, I would say the only other person who, for me, who inspires that that level of commitment is um, uh, Keanu Reeves. Well, his commitment to gunfire, right? Yeah, I mean the any of the any of the behind the scenes reels from the John Wick movies where you see him going through a target range working with uh, real ammo. And just mowing down targets with with you know live live ammunition, uh, that stuff blows your mind. Like I think uh, he's definitely like a gun expert. Um, oh yeah, yeah. You but, put him in a combat situation, he could probably take out a bunch of goons. Yeah, but I mean, I can't see Keanu Reeves. Well, maybe he hasn't had the opportunity, but it's hard to see him hang off the side of the Burj Khalifa. No, that's not. Yeah, I think there's different specialties when it comes to that uh, <laughs> that kind of action action hero stuff. In terms of gunplay, I agree. Keanu Reeves is amazing. I mean, one of the all time best. I wish he played like a. I wish there was a movie like a, where he just played a cop. You know, I think it'd be really interesting just to see him in a yeah, just a cop drama, a gang like cops and robbers type kind of thing. Because he plays kind of brooding characters that are kind of like neither good guy nor bad guy. It'd be, be kind of cool to just like see him as a pretty clean cut, upbeat kind of person once in a while. What about like a a, a true uh, died in the wool noir? Yeah, I mean, you could. Um, I feel like John Wick is... Not that they not that they make any any true noirs anymore. No, but, but I feel I mean, like John Wick like close. a period noir, like set in the set in the thirties, or like maybe an L.A. Confidential kind of thing. Yeah, but definitely. Um, I've always been a big fan of that era, so any film set in that era, I, I like. So I, I I thought Gangster Squad wasn't a very good film, but I, I love the whole production design of the whole thing. As long as Keanu try, doesn't try to do any accents, because he's no good at it. <laughs> he's pretty like as much as I think John Wick is pretty good. He's pretty flat and everything. Like when he's angry, you don't feel the anger, and when he's sad, you kind of feel it. You kind of feel it. I mean, I've I've seen John Wick two uh, uh-huh. twice in theaters now. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, so I saw it once with my brother, and I saw it once with uh, uh, the person who's going to be our special guest next episode. I mean, every time every time I see the John Wick movies at all, I get wrapped up in it, but. You have to be honest with yourself when you finish watching it. And you have to say to yourself, "I wasn't watching it to see uh, Keanu Reeves' line delivery because it's uniformly flat all the time. Um, his in- his inflection, uh, the, the way the way the words come out of his mouth is that's not what you're there to see. It's to watch him move through a scene and how how the the choreography is being done real time in the camera, and the directors are confident enough to just let pull the camera back." And let the guys go at it, and not try to cheat with cuts or uh, shaky cam stuff. Um, yeah. That's were you a were you a big Keanu Reeves fan back in the nineties? No, and that's the thing. Like I've I've come to my I've come to my Keanu Reeves stuff very late uh, in the game, and I've I really haven't seen enough of his nineties stuff to to be a true fan. Oh, but. you should, because. Uh... Growing up, like, he he was, like, obviously popular when I was growing up, but my mom also really liked Keanu Reeves. 
So he went, yeah, he went through a, like a phase in the '90s, and he did two movies, Charlie's There, and I think where they're just really sappy romantic dramas, like the the kind that the '90s were known for when we had like When Harry Met Sally, You've Got Mail, and all those kind of stuff. And if you watch it now, it just it's really funny to see him play that kind of character. Not that he doesn't do it convincingly, like he's not great, obviously, but it's just such a far cry from what he's become. It's kind of like Colin Farrell and Brad Pitt in that sense where they were like leading romantic men and then they've moved so far away from that. So anytime they play that character, it feels so weird. I always I always find that it's like super interesting. I Even just thinking about like Keanu's um, often ridiculed performance in um, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Uh, <laughs> Where again he he falls like he uh, Keanu falls prey to another terrible accent and he has to play he has to play a character who is pretty much the exact opposite uh, to the types of characters that he plays now you know like a weakling yeah and even before that he was in Bill and Ted right where he plays like a stoner meathead <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, it's he's actually shown quite a bit of range throughout his career but I'm glad he's kind of settled into this brooding one man army kind of stage where I think, I think this is his niche really talking about actors who go through changes in their career, uh, especially later on. Um, there is the news that, uh, that's just developed. I think yesterday or the day before, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is almost definitely confirmed to have hung up his endoskeleton. He's no longer going to be playing the Terminator in finally, finally, even though, weirdly enough, he was still the best part of Terminator Genesis. I can't believe you watched that. I I can't believe I watched it either. I, I still I still think back on that movie and grit my teeth because of how committed it is to stomping all. It, it's so like it wants to stomp all over T two in the worst possible ways. It like what do you mean stomp over? Well, it it's trying to fix problems in T uh, three. And Terminator Salvation, but it also it also actually in the script it actively ridicules stuff that we love from T two. There's lines of dialogue where like that's not how things work anymore. This is the new way things work. T two was awesome, man. It's timeless. Yeah. So like I don't know why this film felt the need to to try to twist around and like uh, confuse people with different ideas about time travel and. Um, you know, erasing things that happened in T2 in an effort to reboot the franchise. I mean, why can't they just, why, why couldn't they have a clean reboot, even a clean reboot it with Arnold Schwarzenegger? I don't care. Terminator ended up having the problem where it kind of wrote itself into a corner because it broke all the rules of time travel. Like, let's kind of like backtrack for a sec because T2 in my mind is still one of the best action films of all time yeah like even now even though you know the cgi especially of uh who's the who's the guy who played the bad guy robert patrick so the part where he becomes all liquid metal and stuff yeah it looks super fake but thematically the whole film still works really well like it's exciting it's brutal it's dramatic and then t3 came along and it was crap what did you think of t3 i like i didn't like it at all i don't think i've even ever seen uh t3 all the way through um no, but I, I, I don't quite know how. But the the one thing I've even heard people like 
even recently talking about the this whole Genesis debacle, uh, talking favorably about T3 because there's some people who at least pointed out that as a film, T3 has at least got some sort of linear like narrative thrust that you can actually follow, and it doesn't it doesn't try to rip apart the canon in the way that T4 and T5 did. No, T3 was good. Like the ending of T3 was good. Everything before that was fucking crap. Um, the ending was good because it actually kind of furthered the theory of Skynet and the whole time travel, like, um, can you change, um, future events by going back to the past kind of idea. Terminator Salvation I liked because it was very different. It actually felt more like the first Terminator because it was really gritty and really dark. Uh, but there are also just a lot of things wrong with Salvation. Namely, I don't think Christian Bale was very good as John Connor. And that was, that was like the Sam Worthington coming out party, right? Like he was the only redeeming part of that movie. And it looked like they just caught lightning in a bottle in that one time too, because everything else wasn't very good. And Genesis, Genesis as a film came along and it was, it was trying to address all those, those issues that, that you were pointing out. Um, and it made, it made lots of money overseas, but it didn't break a hundred, the, the magic hundred million dollar uh, barrier in the domestic box office. So I think that signaled to Skydance and some of the other um, and to the studio that it just didn't make any sense to try uh, a T6 using the cast that they they introduced in uh, in Genesis. But they've left the door open for like uh, some other Terminator thing in the future, just not with Arnie. Just fucking kill it, man. If there's no Arnold, there's no Terminator. Like there's no way you can you can actually reboot this thing. Well, I mean, people said that about Han Solo, though, and they get, they did find a really good actor to uh, uh, to play the young Han Solo. And we'll see how that does. But I think it's also safe to say that Star Wars has a bigger following than Terminator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could you <laughs> that's that's not hard to argue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think it's funny how like certain franchises almost have more lasting power overseas, like Terminator. Because they don't dissect it like we do in North America. Right, because you're saying that like like people get a lot more easily impressed by special effects given the state of the, the film industry there. Yeah, um, special effects, big name, that's a part of it. But I don't think let they have the same sort of reverence or memory of Terminator 2 like we do. So for them, it's just like, oh, look, it's this new one. Let's go just check it out. And for us, we're more like, oh, man, another new one. Like, we're tired of this already. It just seems like there's a bit of a lag just because they're not as plugged in into our pop culture, I should say, and how much we dissect everything. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Because I feel like we're pretty, not flimsy, but we flip-flop a lot around a lot of things. Like, we go through, we're a very trendy society. Like things come in and out of popularity, right? Yeah, and and you you do see that in, um, uh, let's say a movie drops and it doesn't have a lot of critical acclaim when it's released in theaters, but then uh, there's it's very common for movies to be sort of be rediscovered twenty years later and kind of reappraised, and people will pick out pick out like hidden gems within the movie that that weren't properly appreciated when it came out. Yeah, I think that I feel like that happens a lot less overseas outside of North America. And I, I wonder if that's the same way for their films as well, where like, say, like a film from Hong Kong is really revered 20 years ago, but they watch it now and they completely feel differently about it. And that that could just be like a, a reaction to that's just a general media criticism thing where um, 
you know, you, yeah. uh, after, after something has been present in the culture for long enough, you know, that, um, the kind of the initial reaction wears off and, and the thing gets reappraised. Yeah. Maybe we're just way into liberal arts here and people just dissect things and <laughs> constantly critique culture and art. And this is what, like, this is the result of that. I don't know. But, uh, speaking of things that freaking keep coming back, Power Rangers, First of all, first of all, let's let's plug uh, all of the great content that you've been putting up on the site <laughs> the past week. <laughs> I'm almost like embarrassed to plug it because it's such a dork and nerdy thing. But still, though, I mean, like, <laughs> I I mean, you come by it really honestly, and and it's uh, I'm I'm still impressed by like first of all how much material you wrote, and uh, second of all the fact that uh, you you were kind of exposing a side of this whole uh, series and franchise that uh, I, I had no idea about. I had, I had the, I had the, just the, the barest like twinkling of an idea of how the mighty Morphin power Rangers that I was familiar with borrowed scenes from some Japanese show, but I didn't know it had nearly the kind of mythology that it, that yeah. it actually does. So that's a good thing. That was actually kind of like one of the main goals was to like show or tell everyone about this, like this whole great separate genre japan has created the stuff that i put on the website and if you go it's on kinetoscope.ca there's a there's a part about power rangers and what it's based off of there's a part about a top 30 villain list and all that combined was still like kind of about like half to three quarters of what i wanted to get through because there's like a whole other like whole other three or four other things that i wanted to touch on but didn't get a chance to yeah yeah I get I get the sense that it's it, there's a whole like uh, like one of those one of those classic Wikipedia wormholes. Yeah, because it's such a long running show, right? Like it's older. It, it's been on TV longer than The Simpsons, and Simpsons has been around forever, right? But uh, I, I don't. Do, were there any questions, or was there anything like in particular that kind of struck you? Well, I think um, the, the one thing that I that I didn't quite make the connection of until I, I read the pieces was the connection between these shows and the kaiju movies uh and how they oh yeah and how they share characters and how you know i mean uh in the 21st century some savvy marketer would would probably try to pitch the whole operation as a gigantic cin- cinematic shared universe but uh at the there time, is a shared universe in japan actually oh uh, but it, but is it sort of is it kind of marketed and branded in the kind of semi-cynical way that it is here it's hard because it's still branded or it's still targeted towards kids, right? So they don't make like a Marvel MCU type deal where they kind of try and get everyone on board, like even the older demographics. Um, they have cameo appearances. They have anniversary movies that's specifically for kids and they make no qualms about it being an anniversary movie. Um, they don't reference it right away in the movie, like directly, but they, it, they obviously, you know... Um, have certain things that go on that kind of hint towards like the past history and the whole mythos of the whole thing but yeah I, like growing up um, those shows were like probably my first experience with visual effects on TV and it, like you look at it now and it's nothing but back in the day it was amazing you didn't see any of that kind of stuff oh yeah of course you know well, the fact that they were playing around with like scale, and like holograms using... and all, like lights and sparks and and all that kind of stuff, is is quite uh, quite a sight for a young kid. And so I think after I immigrated, 
um, I saw the American version, and I think that kind of like, in some weird way, reminded me of Home, even though it was a little different, and probably helped my transition. <laughs> well, uh, how how old do you think you were when when you first uh, saw the American version? The year it came out, or the year after it came out, so ninety four. But I had already started watching it ninety two or ninety three because we got in Taiwan, you got the same um, feed as Japan sometimes, and we they just directly import it or broadcast it on TV. Yeah, so I always had my mom beside me trying to translate stuff, and she kind of wasn't too interested in that. So I kind of had to figure out everything on my own, and it's easy enough to follow. But the other thing is too, like they put so much craft and care into those costumes. I don't know if you saw the monster costumes. Oh yeah, but some of them were like really elaborate, and they all still look good today because it's all practical, right? It's not CGI. Like the level of practical costume design, uh, it it looks like something that. Um like Jim Henson's company would have uh, done in an in American production and then it's hilarious to 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 see how the American version started out with that kind of stuff but when they tried to make the feature film a couple of years later they relied on like uh what what was at the time cutting edge CGI to try to make the big monster <laughs> yeah. battles happen yeah. and, and it nowadays so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever watch the first ever live action Power Rangers movie? <laughs> I feel like I must have like it, it, you uh, must have yeah because every kid did at some point like I feel like because over, over here uh, it probably would have aired at some point on uh, YTV which is a, a major Canadian uh, kids broadcaster and uh, it's just one of those things that that would come on as part of like a weekend movie thing so but uh, if you like other than the giant like CGI monsters there's a couple characters that use practical makeup and they still look okay Oh, like Rita, Rita Repulsa or, or characters like that? Yeah, and there's a part where, like, there's rock monsters that, like, come flying out of the wall in the movie. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. And as they're fighting, it actually looks good until they get, like, kicked and they have to, like, be, like split into a million pieces when they hit the wall. That, that's when it gets, like, super fake. Right. But uh, the, the general trending um, Rotten Tomatoes ranking for Power Rangers is tracking like in the 40s now, high 40s for this. Oh, for the for the new one, you mean? Yeah, for the new one, which I think is actually a bit higher than I thought it'd be. But what's more surprising to me is that a lot of reviews, even the negative ones, have said like, you know what, like there's some redeeming qualities to this film, but it's clear like um, there are certain things that hold it back from being a positive film or a positively really reviewed film. Let's just have a listen to a clip from the trailer really quick, just to give people a taste of what this new version is like. <gasps> Do you feel weird? We're strong. I'm saying we're strong. The answer to what is happening to you is here. You five are the Power Rangers. The, the embargo lifted on it a couple of days ago, so I read a few of the reviews the day the embargo lifted, and it sounded like most people were most impressed with the uh, the big battle at the end. You know, they thought that was reasonably well executed, but that the film could really feel, uh, the, the the film kind of let people down in terms of the uh, the human characters. You know, before they actually get their powers, so pretty standard. Yeah, it's pretty standard for a superhero. Well, what what now we refer to as a superhero movie, we probably wouldn't have called it back when Power Rangers first first landed in America. No. Uh, but uh, have you been keeping up to date on any of the stuff to do with the LGBT uh, character who's uh, featured in it? Yeah. So 
I was talking to a friend the other day and she was saying she called this gay baiting. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to that's one way to, to look at it. And I, I feel like that no, I feel like this is the perfect way to describe things. So um, for those who don't know, it's heavily implied in Power Rangers that ye- that the Yellow Ranger is a lesbian. Or bisexual or something. Or bisexual, yeah. So um, she's not heterosexual. Right. Anyway. And um, then, then there before right before that Beauty and the Beast um, had that little controversy because LeFou was gay because he apparently made eye contact with another male character in that movie. Have you heard about that too? I, I heard about it. I wasn't. I didn't know which scene they were referring to, but um, yeah, apparently uh, the a lot of the controversy was stemming around uh, whether or not those scenes would be trimmed out of the international versions for certain countries like um, like Malaysia that have a um, a more socially conservative attitude and if you think about it it's like the dumbest non-issue ever like i hate it when movies pander to the audience and and include things that they think the audience would like or make things more acceptable because they want a piece of a bigger demographic so remember when um star trek beyond um john chose sulu they made gay i mean obviously sure fine make the character gay who cares right but i at that point i think the main controversy was that because George Takei is gay, it doesn't mean Sulu is gay as well. And they did that just... I, actually, I, I don't even know the logical reason behind it, but um, some people have called it gay baiting, and it's to somehow make the film somehow more attractive for gays because they the characters that are portrayed aren't traditionally heterosexual like most Hollywood films are. Right, It's a, it's sort of an example of like... Uh, of like a tokenism where yeah like um, a token character uh, yeah exactly exactly yeah like a, the like what what used to be referred to as the token black character um, <laughs> yeah. more frequently you know <laughs> yeah. the, the token black character is always the first one to die yeah uh, yeah in in movies from the uh, the 80s and 90s for example and uh even now that's still a bit of a problem although the the label of token black character doesn't get used nearly as often um but it but yeah it's it's the kind of thing that can transition over into other aspects of society like uh uh like sexuality and And the uh, funny thing is we've had so many gay movies in the past oh like movies where the where the principal characters are gay yeah or like the principal conflict is about homosexuality so like brokeback mountain was huge moonlight just won best picture right what was that french movie with lea seydoux blue is the warmest color it's like like we've had so many movies like this and I can't believe that people make such a big deal about having gay characters in quote unquote straight movies. I w- and I wonder how it kind of comes to pass because I feel like you know what some producer sat in a boardroom and said, you know what, we need more money from the gay and lesbian crowd. Let's make one of these characters gay or lesbian, and it'll be the greatest thing ever. It's unfortunate to think about, but but it's probably a hundred percent true because you know these. Uh, whereas the movies that you were just talking about, like Brokeback Mountain, Moonlight, um, or Blue is the Warmest Color, those are movies that are made by writer-directors as like indie films. Uh, granted, they're indie films that build up a big following and eventually get talked about by people because they're nominated for the major awards. Um, but you look to major studio tentpole releases, and those movies are still struggling with diversity on multiple spectrums. Um, so... It, it still comes down to those kind of conversations that happen in studio boardrooms where they've they've come up with like the 10th version of a script. They've hired some new nameless writer to 
uh, do a little bit of their own, like, you know, clean it up a little bit and they'll insert these characters. And because they're being inserted at later stages in production to satisfy, you know, to tick off a bunch of boxes or to help market the film to different, uh, uh, different demographics, it always feels tacked on and never feels organic to the, uh, to the movie. And let's not let the media escape with this because every time there's a gay character or a non-traditional character, it's somehow news. And it really shouldn't be. Like, I wish we would move past that point. Like the uh, uh, the trend, for example, when, when Beauty and the Beast uh, hit theaters last week, it was all about how LeFou is the first gay character in a Disney film. And like... I mean, like it's, maybe it's not, it's, it's not maybe. incorrect, but it's also it also still kind of propagates that that tokenism, you know? Yeah. It's also like, who the fuck cares? Like, it's not central to the story, you know, it's adding labels where there don't need to be. And I feel like if you're if that's what you're concentrating on in the film, you're not concentrating on the right things. It's uh, it, it's a, it's one of those weird feedback loops that happens, you know, in all sorts of different industries. But um, it's yeah, actually. I just thought of this too, but speaking of how like how structured a lot of Hollywood films are, um, did you hear about recently that James Mangold was not very happy with the third act of Logan about how the studios wanted something, he and the studios kind of clashed over uh, what they wanted to do in the third act? Oh, did they want like a happier ending that had a more traditional superhero kind of conclusion? No. So apparently like the big final fight between, spoiler alert, um x24 versus wolverine um that was kind of a studio thing where they really wanted like a final big fight to cap it all off and i don't think james mangold was really interested in that oh okay what was what was his idea for it i i actually don't know i just uh, i just heard about this recently but i mean if you think back on james mangold films um so i'm thinking 310 to yuma because that's the the western he did like that had a final shootout for sure but uh it didn't have like a huge one-on-one battle at the end right and 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 in fact in in sort of letting russell crowe's gunslinger character get away it had a it had a much more um bittersweet kind of ending i did hear that uh in i think in the original ending wolverine spoiler alert doesn't die at the end of logan but uh, they made the decision that Logan should die because, well, you know, it'd be, I think, more profound if a character who people thought was, you know, never going to die actually ends up dying. But anyway, sorry for the huge spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the, um, uh, no, but it's, it's, it's definitely, it's a good example of that larger issue that studio-made movies uh, always struggle with, you know, like what's the what's the intersection between the art and the entertainment you know the the money and the and the culture you know that's that's always an issue with those big tentpole films because they spend that they cost so much to make and the studio as a business has to recoup that money and also make a profit um so it's it's very rare for a movie to 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 perfectly navigate that that uh, weird the weird dynamic and and make it out in one piece are you gonna go see Power Rangers? Probably not. I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna so ready to go and bash it. I, I feel like if I went to see it, I wouldn't. I I would only be going on what I knew about the the American version, and that's enough. I wouldn't be, and I and I feel like I wouldn't be able to to overlook like the the 
CGI stuff and the the bad human acting, or if it even is bad, I don't know. Well, that's the other thing uh, too with the reviews I've read. They said that the, the acting was actually one of the stronger points. Oh, like okay. these teenage. It was about angsty teenagers, yes, but these teenagers generally did a good job of acting or portraying their characters. So it wasn't cringy. I mean, it was cheesy, but not cringy. Okay. Well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll say this then. Um, if it does well at the box office and it it sparks the the kind of huge six film series that uh, that the studio is hoping <laughs> you'll have to, um, <laughs> you'll I'll, have I'll to. probably I'll probably like I'll probably stream it or something. But um, uh, I think the movie that I, that I'm going to be seeing this weekend instead will be Life uh, because uh, when when the chips are down, uh, superhero versus sci-fi, I'm probably going to go with the sci-fi. But uh, Power Rangers, I think, is tracking to have like a thirty million weekend, which is not great to be honest so i'm hoping maybe some word of mouth will generate some more buzz and money for this movie because i because i heard that the after credit scene in power rangers is quite awesome and that it kind of teases a sequel so i'm kind of hoping to at least see a trilogy out of it if anything um just to fulfill my 12 year old child inside me i will say this though the uh um the actor who's playing the blue ranger rj styler yeah, he's getting great reviews. He's he's probably getting uh, great reviews, and he he can't he comes out of Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which is probably my favorite movie of 2015. So, is it really? That's your 2015 favorite? Okay, well, okay, maybe not my because there's still Mad Max Fury Road. So yeah, I, I was gonna know, say, but but, <laughs> <laughs> but Me and Earl and the, and the Dying Girl was definitely in my top ten of that year. Okay, um, yeah, and R.J. Seiler is probably one of the better parts of it. So, and he's such a young actor, you know, it's, he's, he's really, if Power Rangers is the launch pad for a, a big career, uh, I'm all for it. I'm probably going to catch life at some point too. It's just sci-fi jump scare movies don't, aren't necessarily the first thing I gravitate towards. Although I'm going to end up seeing Alien at some point just because I'm so invested in the franchise. But you should let me know how good life is so I, I, I have some idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we'll we'll definitely be able to talk about it in the next episode. Uh, it'll probably be uh, it'll go alongside what I'm hoping will be our uh, our first special guest uh, appearance. Uh, who uh, get her down the damn show, kidnap her if you have to. <laughs> As if everything goes according to plan, we'll be recording that uh, that segment uh, tomorrow. So you'll hear that on uh, on a the next episode after this current one. Um, and uh, the current plan is that uh, she's going to be defending a often overlooked Tarantino film. So uh, look forward to that. But uh, until the next episode, I'm Robert Snow in Toronto. And I'm Jason Chen in Vancouver. Be sure to check out kinetoscope.ca for my Power Rangers contact and Rob's recent review of the classic movie Casino. And we'll talk to you next time. 